right, so, uh, so a few years ago, my wife and I were, um, we were at the beach uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and, uh, and there was, uh, we just, this was pre-kids days, so beach trips are very different pre and post um, little children, but we are just chilling on the beach, and there was a paddleboard rental situation there, so I decided to rent a paddleboard. We've got this paddleboard here today. This belongs to Jen Moreno, one of our staff members. She's so generous. It's okay that I stand on this on stage right now, Jen? Do I need to take my shoes off? Scoot up on the board? Don't want to be on the fins. I got you. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so, so I rented this paddleboard out on the beach, and, um, and there was, it was like a perfect day. It's just smooth water, gentle breeze. I could even see out, out into the water. You know how if you go to the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes there will be like a little strip of like lighter colored water where it's like, is that a sandbar? What is that? It's real far out though, you know? I was like, I'm going to go out towards that thing. And there, I could see out in that strip, there was like some dolphins splashing about. One, two, five dolphins coming about. There's a pod of dolphins. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to go paddle out to this pod of dolphins and see what happens. So I get out on this paddleboard and I start paddling and I, uh, I'm going to adjust the length on this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is like, all right, long arms. All right. So I'm out there paddling and, uh, and I'm, I, 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 I get kind of out towards where I thought the dolphins were. I can't see them anymore. And, uh, and then I notice like one, they just like start splashing up around me. And I'm, I find myself, I'm in the middle of this dolphin pod on this beautiful day. I don't know about you guys, if you're like live your whole life just in the presence of God and you're just like, God, thank you. I just love to thank you for this day. I, I struggle sometimes. I get caught, I get busy or stressed or whatever. In moments like that, I'm like, God, you're just so good. I'm just in your creation. I felt so like, this is a wonderful moment. These dolphins start, start they're coming around me. I mean, I could feel... I was expecting, like, I'm going to get out there and they're, they're going to swim away, you know. They, they wanted me to be with them. I could feel it. They were like, tele, it was like telepathy. They were like sending me messages, like they weren't really. But, but I could feel like these dolphins want me here. And so, and they, they, they were like kind of splashing me. This is like not a rated G moment, but I think two of them were mating in the water, like right next to me. This is wild. This is a National Geographic moment. And I, but I'm just going, this is incredible. So I get down, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to touch a dolphin. This is my goal in this moment. I'm going, I gotta, I've got to like make contact with the dolphin here. And, and, and I, I, I got pretty close. Maybe I grazed one. Some other people came by in a canoe and they were going, this is bleeping crazy, right? Like they're yelling at me, they're filming and stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. They sent me a video. They, I was like, hey, here's my email address. They sent me a video of the moment, but it was just a bunch of like, water. Like they, I don't know what they were thinking. They did not, I cannot prove that this happened. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I can prove to everyone. The video has nothing in it. I don't know what they were videoing, but, but there's a video. You can hear our dialogue. Like this is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I'm out there and I'm like, this is the most amazing moment of my life. And then I think I, this, this, I have this moment that comes over me and I go, I'm pretty vulnerable right now. Like these dolphins could team up and take me down pretty easily if they were malicious because they were kind of bumping the board and stuff and I'm like you know and so but I, I tried to press past that I'm like no no I'm just gonna there's, there's I'm assuming a purity of heart in these creatures around me and um I, and it felt it felt great and so finally I decided okay it's time to go back in I look back to the shore and that gentle breeze had become a stronger wind and I had blown pretty far out into the water. I even thought, like, are the dolphins, were they luring me out <laughs> into the ocean? 
they are malicious. And so I, I'm like, I got to get back. And I'm, I'm realizing like, my wife's on the beach and she's like, she's probably freaking out. Like she can't even see me anymore. And so I turn around and I start paddling and I'm having to, I was, I was started off, I was standing up, but the wind was blowing right at me. And it was like, my body was a sail. Like I couldn't even move forward. So I had to get down on my knees and I was like digging into the water to try to get back. 30 minute battle with the wind in the waves to get back to the shore. Finally, I collapsed onto the beach, barely survived, barely made it. I'm being a little dramatic right now, but there's this incredible moment of wonder, the sea, the ocean. It's bigger than you. It's, there's, there's, there's wonders and mysteries in its depths, but then I also had this moment where you realize how small you are. You know, you realize how feeble you are if things turned on their head out on the open water. And I think this is what the ocean does for us. I feel like I experience God in bodies of water. And I also experience my own humanity and my own frailty. I'm going to go ahead and give this board back if somebody wants to grab it. Sam, oh, Sam and Mark, you're both right there. Okay, one a paddle, one a board. Amazing. Thank you, guys. This is great. I would love to just preach from the board the whole time, but I won't do that because that'd be a little awkward and mainly just for my enjoyment. So... Today, we're beginning a three-week series called The Sea, a place of mystery and miracles. And I just want to cut to the chase for us. This series is all about the belief that God has a purpose for your life, big picture like your whole life, and for your life in this season, even in this week of your life. God has a purpose for you, but I would I could almost guarantee you that God's purpose for your life exists on the other side of something. And that something is, is what the sea represents to us. So often through the scriptures and in the gospels, we're going to take the next three weeks and we're going to look at three different gospel accounts all in the book of Mark that took place on the water, on the sea of Galilee. We're going to talk a little bit today about what the sea represented in the mind of the ancient uh, Israelite, there is, is very specific context that's going to be helpful for us. And from the very beginning of this message, I want you to begin asking yourself the question and even asking God the question as you're listening today, what are your purposes for my life that you want me to wake up to? And what is the sea that I must cross to step into that? As I follow you, Jesus, what are you calling me out onto and across as I step into your purposes in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah? You with me today? Great. I'm going to put these amazing notes over here because I'll be distracted at how great um, the first sermon was. No. Um, we're going to begin by reading one quick verse. We've got a few different verses we're going to read and then finally a longer passage we'll read in Mark. But let's start with Mark 1.14. This is going to be on the screen for us today. Mark 1.14. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So the Sea of Galilee, this is an area. Galilee is a region in northern Judea. The Sea of Galilee is, a, is a, a body of water. We've got a picture of it that we'll put up on the screen. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and this is where Jesus chose to begin his ministry. He, he, he entered into, it says in that verse we just read, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. So his sense of purpose that God the Father had for him and his ministry was, I need to go to this place. 
What is, the, what is the Sea of Galilee? What is the region of Galilee? I want to give you a little bit of context here. Uh, geographically, like I said, it's northern Judea. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest altitude-wise freshwater lake in the world. It's actually a lake. Um, they call it the Sea of, sea, sea of Galilee in the, uh, in the Gospels. It is technically a lake, and it's the lowest-lying freshwater lake in the world. Um, this is... This is going to be important. Next week, we're going to read about a passage, a familiar passage, where a storm comes over the lake, and there's a lot of the geographical features of this area that, that made it a pretty treacherous place. Caroline Shandell, one of our board members, is going to be preaching next week. It's going to be a good one. So definitely come back for that or join us online for that. So the, it's the, the lowest freshwater lake in the world, and it's the uh, second lowest lake total in the world, second behind the Dead Sea, which is a saltwater lake. Once again, they both exist within a land area. And, and the Sea of Galilee feeds the Jordan River, which then runs south to the Dead Sea and ends at the Dead Sea. So these two bodies of water are connected. So, so much of what's taking place in the, in, the, in the scriptures and in the gospels exists around these two little bodies of water that are like very unique Nothing like them in the rest of the world. And the elevation changes that take place in this region are, are very dramatic. Um, culturally, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee was the fishing center in the region, in the region of Galilee and in the, the whole rest of the area, um, which is significant. Jesus, so much of his ministry uh, involved fishermen and fishing. He, taught, he used fishing metaphors. He called fishermen to be his disciples, to get into their fishing boats and get out onto the waters with them, and he called them out into these waters. I don't think it's a, a mistake. that Je Why is Jesus choosing Galilee? Well, there's something about this idea of fishing that was important to his message, and the medium kind of is the message. We get this concept. Also, um, the, uh, let's throw the picture of the, the sea back up there. I want to point out a couple of things. So there's multiple towns around that are on the coastline there. One is the the city of Tiberias, the town of Tiberias, named after Tiberius Caesar, who's an emperor during this time of Rome. Bad dude, by the way. You can Google him, read his Wikipedia page. Um, some rough stuff happening under his rule. But he, uh, he named this town Tiberias, uh, and it's still there. It's still a town there called Tiberias. They didn't change the name after he died, which would have made sense because he, once again, not a great dude. But uh, you can go to Tiberias. It's like a resort town on the, on the Sea of Galilee. I, I stayed there when I was 20 years old and got to visit the Holy Land. Um, and it, when it was founded in the first century, it was originally, this is a little interesting tidbit, it was founded on, a part of it was built on top of a cemetery. And this being a largely Jewish area, Galilee, Jews didn't want to live on top of dead bodies. They thought that was an unclean thing. And so they had to, they built this city, and Rome did, and then they had to populate it, they had to force populate it with poor people, sick people, and recently freed slaves. So someone's got to live in this town, and so they forced these groups to live there because Jews were not volunteering to live in this town. Um, and so Tiberius actually became this, uh, like a, an epicenter of sick people who would move there and even became like a, like a medical resort kind of area where sick people would go and stay just to be close to the water and in the sun and, and in hopes of getting well. So when you read the Gospels and you're like, man, are they exaggerating how many sick people there were? <laughs> like, it seems like every other person Jesus meets is sick, and he needs to heal them. Why are there so many sick people? 
because they had moved to Tiberias in the Sea of Galilee to live there. There were literally more sick people per capita around the Sea of Galilee. I never knew this before. This is super interesting. So why would Jesus choose to begin his ministry around the Sea of Galilee? I think the fishing thing was important. And maybe he was driven by, there's a lot of need in this area and, God, and an opportunity to, to serve people's needs and to bring glory to God through miracles. This is what's happening here around the Sea of Galilee. The sea had uh, multiple names. It was known as the Sea of Tiberias, na- named after that emperor. Um, named also the Lake of Gennesaret or the Lake of Kinneret, or finally the Sea of Galilee. Most of the gospel writers refer to it most of the time as the Sea of Galilee, even though it was a lake. And I think the, the, the reasoning for calling it a sea is connected to the way ancient Hebrew people thought of the sea. Uh, when you read the Gospels, th- there's this sense that the Sea of Galilee, it's not just a place, it's not just a geographical fixture, it almost becomes a character in the stories. Um, it's, it, they're interacting with the sea as storms are coming over. It's, it ha- almost has a personality of its own um, and plays a role in these stories. And, and so for the the ancient Hebrew person, they thought of the sea as representative of chaos and uncertainty and even evil. N.T. Wright, in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, he goes into detail about how ancient Hebrews thought about the sea um, and even names some different passages where the sea shows up through the scriptures. The last place in scripture that the sea is mentioned is Revelation 21, where it says, in the new heaven and in the new earth, there will be no more sea. Which is interesting. I love the ocean. I love the sea. I think I have happy thoughts when I think about the ocean. Why, why won't there be an ocean? That makes me sad if I'm not going to be able to like hang out at the beach in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, is it literal? I don't know. It's at least metaphorical. It's at least symbolic, meaning to the original writers and the original audience of Revelation, hey, the thing that represents chaos and uncertainty and even the evils of the world, and the way they thought about evil, it was, it was like human evil and also the evils of like forces of nature, hurricanes and tornadoes and you know, whatever, stuff that, natural disasters, viruses, like the, the things that we find coming against us as humanity, that there will be no more of that. That's what the sea represented to the ancient Hebrew mind. That's how the, the scriptures end in Revelation. There will be no more sea. The scriptures begin with the sea. The chaos and churning in the spirit hovering over the waters and speaking order and life into that place. So the, the whole narrative of scripture begins with chaos. And so much of the narrative of scripture is God dealing with chaos and evil and all that's wrong. And the final ending point of scripture is that all of that will be no more. And only good, only right, only as things were meant to be, is the finality of the, the story. It's very interesting, right? Genesis 1 begins with the sea. Then it, it shows up again in Genesis 6 with the flood that comes and destroys most of life on earth. It's not mentioned again until Exodus when Moses and, his, and the people of God are literally standing in front of the sea and God has to lead them through it. The Psalms speak to the sea and God being greater than, Yahweh being greater than. Uh, Psalm 29, Yahweh is king over the flood. Psalm 93, Yahweh, when the floods lift up their voice, that he, Yahweh on high is mightier than they are. 
Uh, Psalm 77 and 114, the waters saw Yahweh, saw the Lord, and were afraid, and they went backward. They recede at the sight of the great God. Uh, Psalm 69, that Yahweh rules the raging sea and even makes it praise him. So Jesus shows up, and their responses as he's performing these miracles on the Sea of Galilee is even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? One who's greater than the, what, what we believe is the source and representation of all uncertainty, all chaos, all evil, all that's wrong with the world. Jesus is, is greater. Daniel 7, the monsters who make war upon the saints of the Most High come up out of the sea. That's our, that's our Bible survey of the sea. One, I want to give one final thought, a quote from N.T. Wright from this book about the sea. We'll put this up on the screen. This is N.T. Wright talking about the, the meaning of the sea in the scriptures. The sea has become the dark, fearsome, threatening place from which evil emerges, threatening God's people like a giant tidal wave, threatening those who live near the coast. For the people of ancient Israel who were not for the most part seafarers, the sea came to represent evil and chaos, the dark power that might do to God's people what the flood had done to the whole world, unless God rescued them as he rescued Noah. So this is the, the relationship the authors and readers and hearers of these texts and those interacting with Jesus in this time, this is their relationship with the sea, conceptually. And so Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee, and what does he do? He's interacting with them in these various towns. He's going to Capernaum as a town on the Sea of Galilee where Peter lived. They kind of set up their base there. And um, in Mark 1, actually, you know, it says he went into Galilee Ministry begins in Capernaum, and it's blowing up. They can't even fit everybody at the house that they're staying at. People are coming, and he's healing all their diseases. He's casting demons out of people. And then I want to read this, this verse to us uh, from Mark 138. We'll put this on the screen. Jesus replied, they're saying, hey, come back. There's people looking for you. They need you to heal them some more. And Jesus says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. That is why I've come. Listen to the sense of purpose Jesus has. That is why I've come. He knows why he's there. Not just to build something. They, they could have built a ministry that would have, you know, become famous in the region. And maybe across, um, across all of Israel, Palestine, that area. Because of what was growing right there in Capernaum. He says, no, here's why I've come. I have come for others. Other people, not just the ones who've already tasted and seen. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages. Do you have a sense of purpose in your life to where you could say, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. I believe God wants to give you a sense of purpose in your life where you can, like Jesus, say, this is why I've come. This is why I'm in Atlanta. This is why I'm in this neighborhood. This is why I'm alive right now in 2021. This is why I'm here. Let me tell you, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor of a church uh, where for the past 18 months, we're basically just pivoting one week, month, season to the next. This week, I could very easily this week to have forgotten what our purpose was and been like completely wrapped up in like, what do we do about the masks? <laughs> Mask mandate. What about this? What about the science? What about the... And, and honestly, get distracted by something that's not my purpose or our purpose. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Grace Midtown, where our sense of purpose and mission, Sam Breen talked about this earlier when we were doing offering. 
This is why we exist, together inviting all humans to become awake to God. That's why Grace Midtown. That's why we're here. This is what we're here to do. Everything we do has to serve that, otherwise it's a distraction from that. Every decision we make, right, has to be through that filter. We're here to invite all humans to become awake to God. And that means we're going to make some decisions where we'll get it right. We'll make some decisions where we'll get it wrong. But we don't succeed or fail based on any of those things. It's about inviting, becoming awake to God and inviting people to become awake to God. So this morning, I woke up, and, and I, I, it's not like I wake up with this already present to myself. I have to get there. But I'm getting out of bed this morning going, okay, God, I'm going to do what I'm going to do today. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll become a little more awake to you. And hopefully, we together, as we do something, our team, our staff, our community as we gather, we'll become a little more awake to you. And hopefully, I'll do and say some things where I personally can make a contribution that will help some people become a little more awake to you. That's a sense of, that, that's the purpose. That's it. That's it. Not, did we get the mask thing right or whatever. We're doing our best in every area. But if this is, this is our aim, Right? Do you have a sense of purpose in your life? This is why I've come, Jesus says. The next verse I want to point out to us is from Mark chapter 4. I'm just kind of setting the stage for us with some of what's happening in Mark. We'll put this on the screen as well. Mark 4.35. That day when evening came, Jesus, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other. Get the picture here. They're standing on the coast. They're standing on the shore. They're looking out at the water, the Sea of Galilee. They, they, They probably haven't crossed it yet in their time with Jesus. Um, they've, they've interacted and done some ministry in these various towns around the coast. And Jesus says, hey, let's go over to the other side. That involves getting into a boat and sailing across the sea. His sense of purpose was now leading him and his disciples across. God has a purpose for you in this season. I could guarantee you, almost guarantee you, it exists on the other side of something. What is the sea in your life right now? And what is on the other side of it for you? Jesus' sense of purpose is what's leading him across. And it's, it's always for the sake of what's on the other side that leads us through. It's not because you're a glutton for punishment, so you just want to do the hard stuff. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. It was about resurrection, it was about what he would give to the world through the cross, not because he's like, I just, you know, I've all, like, I, I think sometimes we can, like, we can have, let this, like, self-hatred thing shrouded in religious language make us talk about the cross and, like, God, just, I just got to carry my cross. And God's like, come on, I don't want you to do it. I want you to be free. And the cross is an instrument of liberation. That's what Dallas Willard says. I want you to be whole. I want you to be resurrected. I want you to lead other people into this life. That's what it's for. It's not so that you can like learn some hard lesson by self-punishment or something. It's always for the sake of what's on the other side. What's on the other side that God's leading you to? Here's the passage that I want us to, to really kind of live in today. This is, um, this is the event that took, took place on the water, on the sea, that we're going to talk about today. Each of these weeks, we're going to look at a passage that took place on the Sea of Galilee, like in the boat, on the water, and see what God is speaking to us in this sense of purpose from each of these. So this one is, is from Mark 8. We'll put this on the screen as well. Might be freezing up. There we go. Mark 8, 14 through 21. 
This is right after the feeding of the 4,000. They've gotten back in the boat and they're going back across the sea. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, which is odd because they had just multiplied basketfuls (laughs) to feed 4,000 people. And they had seven extra basketfuls left over. And it says they forgot the bread. Well, that's, that's, you know, ironic and unfortunate. Except for one loaf. They had one loaf with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread that he's saying this. Which this is an odd, mysterious thing that Jesus is saying. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And then they immediately go to, it's because we forgot the bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, because they're all in the boat together, Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many basket, basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the pieces, did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Which, I mean, you read this and you can be like, yeah, they don't get it. They're stupid. But I'm like... What are we talking about exactly? Like, it's sort of a weird conversation, right? I, I, you can't blame them fully. So, so here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break this down. I think there are three lessons coming from this passage for those who are following Jesus across the sea. Three lessons coming out of this, this passage. The first is, is, comes from the first thing Jesus says. Hey, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. It's, it's a lesson about yeast. Yeast which is used in baking bread to make it rise. Um, There's stuff in the Gospels, other stuff about yeast. Jesus says, hey, watch out. A little bit of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Sort of like a slippery slope warning. Like, hey, be careful. Like, you inch your way out here, and you end up with something else entirely. A little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. Um, Anybody get super into sourdough a year ago? Everyone was like, you have a good starter? I have a starter. I found a starter. I've dug up a starter that was 2,000 years old. It's from a, it was in a clay pot. And I, I don't... Some of you were like, oh, man, I forgot about starters and sourdough. That was like back in the Tiger King portion of the <laughs> pandemic. It's a simpler time. That was back when we were like, this will probably only last a few weeks. Let's make sourdough. Just to pass the time. <laughs> So some of you know about yeast now. That's the point. Um, Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What what are these two different people or two different groups? The Pharisees were religious, Jewish religious leaders. They wanted a Messiah who would establish what they expected the kingdom of God to be, that would put them in a place of power because they viewed themselves as the underdogs in their current setting, people who've been oppressed historically, but who God had great plans for. And so they're waiting for a Messiah who would level everybody else and place them on top. They, they kind of wanted to get their rightful place in the world. And their expectation was, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to do this. And there are ways that, that, that the followers, or that the, the Jews in the first century tried to bring about the kingdom through through violent revolution, Jesus even warns them, hey, if you try to bring about the kingdom with the sword, you will, two things will happen. One of two things. Either A, you die by the sword, or B, maybe something worse, you become like those you attempted to defeat. You will become like Rome in your attempt to defeat them in the ways of Rome. How we bring about the kingdom, it tells us what kind of kingdom we're bringing about. And so Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, 
And watch out for the yeast of Herod, which is sort of this political maneuvering thing. There's two different Herods in the, in the New Testament. There's the Herod the Great, who was alive at the birth of Jesus, who, who uh, after the Magi said, hey, king of, king of the Jews has been born. He, he kills every male baby to try to protect his power. There will be no king of the Jews. He was the governor. Herod is the governor over the, the region of Galilee. Protect what is his. Then his successor, Herod Antipas, is the one who has John the Baptist beheaded for calling him out about the woman he married. And then later on in his life, uh, this Herod Antipas was eventually exiled to Spain because he conspired with Sejanus, whose name I'm saying wrong, against Emperor Tiberius to overthrow the emperor of Rome. And when Caligula found out about this, who was another political leader, he had him exiled to Spain where he eventually died. So what's the yeast of Herod? There's something about this manipulative political games like you're, a, you're in the arena, you're a gladiator in the arena trying to get what you want. And he's saying, beware of the yeast, of the, the way of thinking of both of these things. Why? What, what, why is, what's this about? What's this about? I think the message coming through here, and this is an important message for us in our day. In your attempt to do the activity, the activity of the kingdom of God, the work of the kingdom of God in the world, don't let your activity in the world be defined by the agendas of the world. Because... Y'all, look around. If any of us have woken up to anything over the past couple years, it's like, man, everybody's got an agenda, don't they? Even if the thing that the work is, is good, maybe, and even aligned with the heart of God in some ways, man, you see the motivations behind some of this stuff, whether you're talking politics or business or organizations or individuals or ambition or ego or whatever the thing is, there's a fuel driving so much of the activity in the world, and it's because there's always some other agenda. And the, the tension that the church must live in is to say, we're here to do the activity of the kingdom of God, and we want Jesus' agenda, because Jesus has an agenda in the world. We want to partner with Jesus in the work that he's doing, and sometimes that means like what this political party is doing in the world. Actually, that issue is really important to God's heart. Don't let the agenda override, though, the activity of God that you're partnering with in the world. Or over here, it'd be easy to just look at left and right and all that stuff. It's more nuanced than that. It's deeper than that. And I'm just going to take this idea. I'm going to put it right here. I'm going to let you do with it what you want. I'm going to let God speak to you. Do with the application and the implications of this. But I think there's a message here in the yeast of, hey, don't let your activity for God in the world, don't, don't let that activity be defined by the agendas of the world. Is this a good word, right? A good challenge for us? The next, okay, thank you. The next lesson coming through the bread is why is it that immediately they hear a, a challenge from Jesus and they immediately go to scarcity? It's because we have no bread. We're gonna die of starvation out here on this lake. And he's like, did you forget that Literally, an impossible creative miracle in the form of bread just took place in your hands. What, do you remember how many basketfuls were left over? Like, why are you worried about having enough? The lesson here is simple. It's this. It's God will provide for you. God will provide. God will provide. You don't have to worry about having enough. 
And so often the thing keeping us from stepping out into the purposes God has for our life is fear of not having enough. Because we just assume, we go back to this narrative where we're all alone in the world so quickly. That's, so, that's our default mode for many of us. And so you get, you get a dream, you get a vision, you get excited, oh, I'm going to step out, I'm inspired. And then the first challenge that hits and you're like, God left me, I'm dead. I'll never make it. There's not enough bread. <laughs> like that's the... And Jesus is going, no, remember the, remember the manna? Remember the way I've taught you to pray? Ask for your daily bread? In the Gospel of John, Jesus takes the moment of, of bread creation and, and turns this into a teachable moment. He says, hey, actually, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. I, God, does, God won't just provide what you need. He is what you need. This is the message coming through the bread. God is what you need. He's the bread. He's the loaf in the boat that multiplies and is always enough. You have everything you need with Jesus. Simple. It's simple. It's, it's simple and it's so hard. It is simple. It's not complicated. It's simple and it's so difficult because we always, like the disciples, run back to, ah, man, we don't have enough. And Jesus goes, what? <laughs> the third lesson, I think come, we see it in his frustration. Are, do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Have you forgotten what just happened? Because the miracle just happened in your own hands. Because the message of Jesus, as he's taken them back and forth across this sea into these other towns and these other places and over to the other side, the, the, the lesson he's trying to teach them is, hey, I want to use you to bring about the purposes of God in the world, which means what you're here to do is to get involved. This is the third lesson. Get involved. Get involved in what God's doing. Get your hands dirty. This is Jesus saying, the bread multiplies as you hand it out. The bread, the bread that gets multiplied is the meager offering of the little boy who's like, I got some loaves and fishes. Think about this. He could have so easily been like, I'm not going to offer this little lunch. I'm embarrassed. This is not enough. It would be silly. I would look so naive and stupid if I go up to Jesus, who's famous, by the way, and say, hey, you want to use, what, could you use this? He'll probably laugh at me, and his disciples will probably kick me out, because they've kicked some kids out before. <laughs> but no, either he believes enough about Jesus to offer what he has, or he cares enough about the needs of the people who are starving around him, or both. But whichever it is, it's enough, it's enough for him to trust that what he has could be used for something beyond himself. Get involved, get involved, get involved. What's the C? What's the C that's keeping you, that stands in between you and the purpose God has for you? Sometimes it's, it's fear. Sometimes it's, man, this is going to cost me some time or some money or some energy. Sometimes it's your own insecurity. I wrote a book a few years ago, and, um, and there is a C in between the idea of writing a book and finishing it. And the C comes in multiple forms. It, yes, it comes in the form of like putting words on a page, like actually doing that, writing the thing. But it's more than just like coming up with the concepts or, or putting the sentences together. There's also a C in the, in the form of the voice in your head that says, who do you think you are to do this? The voice in my head that said, I'm not an author. I've never authored anything. That's what makes you an author, right? Right? Well, you know, you know how you become an author. 
is you freaking write something. That's how. That's what I had to tell myself, like, oh, I'm not one yet. But it's not about who I am. It's about, like, I got to just do something. Just do it. Why am I attaching my identity to this? Oh, because that's what I do about everything. Great. Okay, thanks, Jesus. Let's keep talking about it. This is a good conversation. <laughs> who do I think I am? That might be the C for some of you guys. Who do you think you are? We've got to be able to detach our sense of value and identity and am I enough or am I huh? and just get involved. Just offer your lunch. Just open your hands. Just get in the boat. Just open the sails up. Just say yes. This is a series, this is a message about saying yes to Jesus, to simply getting involved. Get involved. Get involved. Um, and this is, the, let me just give you a quick little note here about getting involved. Any people in their 20s in the room right now? Raise your hands up high if you're in your 20s or like younger than 20s. There's, all hope is lost for the rest of us. So I just want to speak to the, you guys. no, I'm just kidding. There's a, I'm, I, you know, I'm joking. But a little bit, no, okay. If you're in your 20s, I talked to a lot of people in your 20s and I think that sometimes, uh, sometimes in this particular life stage that you find yourself in, we can be overwhelmed and even paralyzed by the, like, like what's, what's God's will for my life? And like you have to make decisions that are going to be the thing you're doing for the rest of your life. And I'll just tell you, your 20s are for trying stuff. Your 20s are for saying yes. Your 20s are for going, is this going to be my career path for the next 40 years? I don't know, but I will never know if I don't try it. What about this other thing that I also care about? And if I take this risk and, and make this pivot in my life, like, what am I sacrificing or giving up? Let me tell you, it's going to be a lot harder when you've been in your job for 20 years and you've got a mortgage depending on it and your family and all this. Stuff. Like, now is the time to take some risks and try some stuff and see. And if it doesn't work out, then you just go back. It costs less to try stuff in your 20s. That's just true. This is just practical, right? Is this my soulmate? I don't know. You haven't even talked to them yet. How about strike up a conversation? How about, I'm going to talk to the dudes for a minute, the single dudes. Just ask her out. You don't have to be weird. Don't say some prophetic word. <laughs> you don't need, she'll know if God's in it eventually. <laughs> don't tell her. <laughs> don't, that's a good way to remove him. <laughs> God told me that, you know, I'm supposed to be your Boaz. <laughs> about to be a no as okay so just try just try just try some stuff just try some stuff 20s are for saying yes 30s actually become more about saying no you have to start saying no to stuff because your yeses have to mean more and you have to have actually less yeses but you don't know what to say no to until you've said yes to some stuff that's not the right thing it's the process of elimination it's very simple really it's hard simple and difficult that's for the 20-somethings. You're welcome. This, was, this is just a little nugget for you. It, but I think this applies to all of us, too. There is a risk. There's a risk that God is calling us to take, calling you to take. There's a sea for you to cross, and it's for the sake of what's on the other side of it. And um, it starts with getting involved. There's some really big ways to get involved in what God's doing in your life, and there's some really simple ways. Uh, in the ministries of this church, we're, you're going to hear some stuff in the coming weeks of like, here's some ways to just get involved in very practical ways. You cannot do everything, by the way. You can do like one thing or two, maybe. You're busy and traffic's bad. 
So pick a thing to try for a season, right? But there's going to be some opportunities to just get involved in what God's doing in this city through partnerships with Peace Prep Academy here in the neighborhood or Atlanta Young Life or Love Beyond Walls, other organizations that we'll be talking to you about. Here's some stuff that you can get involved with, the opportunity to say yes and see what God might do through your hands in this way. But then there's also just your real life, your regular life, your job, your family, your neighborhood. Your... How can you get involved in what God is doing in your context? It's going to be a question for us to get into. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And what we want to do right now is we want to respond with one thought. We'll have a few processing questions at the end of the gathering. One thought here. And that is, in the space we're going to create, can you even in this moment experience the presence of Jesus in a way and engage with the presence of Jesus in a way that allows you to say yes to him in the face of uncertainty. This is faith. This is what faith is. Faith, this is an old adage, faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of certainty. So you can have doubts. You can have questions. The question for you is, with a sea in front of you and a whole lot that you cannot see or understand and a whole lot that you can't control, Will you and are you able to trust Jesus and say yes to him and take a step and get into a boat and put up the sails and see where he might take you in whatever area of your life makes sense right now? So I'm going to invite you to stand. And this is going to be a time for us just to, for you and Jesus personally, just to go, I'm going to muster all that I can inside myself to say yes to you in your presence, in the midst of your goodness and your love and your kindness to me. Jesus, I want you and all that you have for my life. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.